Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Professor Cass Sunstein, who's currently the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard University. Uh, He's the author of numerous books, including my favorite, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, with Richard H. Thaler. And he's also Senior Counselor at the Department of Homeland Security. Professor Cass Sunstein, welcome to Race and Democracy. A great pleasure to be here. Now, I want to talk to you about a number of different things, including the contemporary state of our democracy, American democracy. It's been such an uh, amazing last 18 months, but really the last 12 or 13 years, I'm, I'm working on a new book where I make the argument that this period is, is a period of America's third reconstruction. You worked in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2012, the first term, as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And you also served on the President's Review Board on Intelligence and Communications Technologies and on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. I want to ask you about your role in government and sort of how it translated from your role as a very eminent uh, academic and law professor, especially constitutional uh, law scholar. So yeah, I, I want to start there. How was it shifting those roles from being an academic uh, to really being part of uh, the federal government in the Obama White House. And really, how did you tell, tell our listeners, how did you get that gig? How did you get to the Obama White House? Thank you for that. So President Obama was Professor Obama for many years, and he was my colleague at the University of Chicago Law School, and he was a friend. And I remember telling him one day as he was standing outside a bookstore, he was probably in his young 30s, I said, you know, you should be president someday. And uh, he, kind of, he kind of smiled as if that was, you know, what was I drinking? But when I was on Marine One, he invited me on Marine One, which is the small helicopter that the president gets to uh, fly in. Uh, I said, did you ever think when you were at the University of Chicago that we'd be in Marine One? And he said, Cass, you told me. Don't you remember outside the bookstore? <laughs> I was flabbergasted that he remembered that. And I said, well, the fact that you were going to be president, that was obvious. But the idea that I would be in Marine One, that's that's the big surprise. Uh, So he was a, a friend and we talked about the Constitution and about law and about what government should be doing. And when he was elected, my Uh, first choice really was to run that office, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. It's not a very public or famous office. It's not the kind of job that, you know, gets the front page of the newspaper. But you have a chance to do more good, I think, in like two weeks in that job than in uh, anything else, at least that I could think of, because it oversees civil rights regulations, it oversees regulations involving the environment, involving health and safety, involving poverty, involving food safety, involving a very large number of things. And you can, subject to the direction of the president, you can move the apparatus of government in one or another direction. So I thought that would be a high honor. And 
I actually strongly begged him to have that job. And he thought, you want that job? And I said, I really want that job. And he, he said, after multiple discussions, okay, go for it and, and basically don't screw it up. Um, and my personal relationship with him made that possible. Uh, the adjustment for being a professor to that was bigger than I would have expected. So I had studied, you know, environmental protection and civil rights and the Constitution and, and these issues, including this office, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. I studied it for decades and those topics for decades. But I felt I was learning like drinking water from a fire hose, that the practicality of government was something that I really didn't see clearly. And I just had to learn from people who'd been there for, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years uh, about problem solving rather than about theory. And there are all these agencies with acronyms, you know, DOJ, people know means Department of Justice, CEQ is the Council on Environmental Quality, and their DPC is the Domestic Policy Council, and people would refer to these entities with their initials, and I would have to pretend I knew what they were talking about. But it turned out that all of these entities were core partners, and I would have to know exactly what they did and what their role was. And the role of moving the government, let's say, to do something about prison rape or to do something about poverty, that was that was really new to me, and uh, I was dependent on the kindness of strangers. Now, give us an example, if you would, about the how how the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, for example, impacts civil rights. Because you talked about regulations, you talked about the DOJ and environment. Uh, in what way, and and during your time overseeing that office, what were some examples of progress? But what were some challenges and setbacks as well? Okay. One one example is prison rape. So there's a law that Congress enacted, optimistically called the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And uh, that law doesn't mean anything, really, until there are regulations issued by the Department of Justice, which do something about prison rape. And this is a problem of race. It's a problem of uh, poverty. It's a problem of sex. And uh, President Obama really wanted that law to be made meaningful by a regulation from the Department of Justice. What people don't generally know is if the Department of Justice is going to issue a regulation, it might involve what discrimination is on terms of race. It might involve what discrimination is on the basis of sex. Or in this case, it's the Prison Rape Elimination Act. It sends it over, so to speak, to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and it can't become binding or anything that means anything until that office says it's ready to go. And the office typically has up to 90 days to get it in shape. And get it in shape means make sure it's legal, make sure everyone else in the government who has something to say about it thinks that it makes some sense, and to make sure that it's going to produce the benefits it's supposed to produce, and to ensure it's consistent with what the president wants to happen. 
So when that rule came over from the Department of Justice, it's it's been a long time, so I'll, I'll tell you a fair bit. Um, there were people inside the government, including the Department of Homeland Security, who thought it wasn't ready for prime time. Some of them thought it should be stronger than it was. Some of them thought that it should make more adjustments for the diversity of detention, let's call them detention facilities that the U.S. has, including prisons and things that aren't quite prisons. And some institutions like the Department of Homeland Security said, we have our own ways of dealing with prison rape. And the Department of Justice ways just aren't suited to what for us is sometimes a two or three day stay. And so what the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice did was argue. And what the president of the United States told me to do was mediate the argument and get the rule out. And there were many legal disputes between those two departments. I mean, they didn't go to court. They just had to be thought through. And there were policy disputes between those two as well. And that meant that we had to work really hard to get everyone on the same page. And in the way on that one, I would act as a mediator, as a, uh, as a listener, and try to figure out what was being said that was really forceful on one side or another. And then once everyone said, you know, this is fine, or even this is good, then it's ready to issue. And then the president says, Cass, finally you got it done. And then it becomes binding law. All credit really goes to the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security in that case, who did superb work. But there had to be someone who basically listened to their disagreements and tried to figure out how to, how to resolve them in a way that both, both of them thought was um, reasonable. Now, when you look back upon your time in the Obama administration, um, and really just those eight years, are you surprised, especially um, with what occurred subsequently, about the pushback that President Obama and that administration got really from multiple sides? So I'm thinking not just uh, the birther movement and the Tea Party movement that gave rise to Trumpism and MAGA, or at least helped animate and energize those forces, but also from the left. I'm thinking about, in a lot of ways, I think what's extraordinary about those years is that it, it also generated, or at least was was generated parallel alongside of it was Black Lives Matter, um, the rise of AOC, Bernie Sanders. So I'm thinking of a very sort of progressive, at times even radical left, that in 2008, it seemed as if Obama had captured all of that energy um, and was able to sort of, sort of galvanize uh, into the biggest um, popular vote in American history up until that time. What, were you surprised about the response to the administration? Uh, absolutely astounded. And I think I understand somewhat in retrospect, though I am completely astounded, and I was in real time, about Trump and the right. Uh, and I can talk about that with conviction. On the left, I feel puzzled, and I'm just not sure what to think. So on the right, uh, I thought that Obama was one of, and I think this, was one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. And I'm hopeful that he'll go down in history that way, that he had the most important social legislation, that is the Affordable Care Act since the 1960s. He had the most important uh, economic legislation, the Dodd-Frank financial reform since the 1930s. He had the most important environmental 
environmental policies ever, really. He had the most important uh, anti-smoking policy ever. He did more on civil rights in multiple ways than anyone, at least since Johnson. And he did a lot about poverty to counteract poverty, including in some ways that were really subtle. I got to be involved in a few of those. And, uh, and he did that all without... Um, uh, tanking the economy, and indeed he was the economy was on the precipice, and probably his greatest achievement, I think, was to save the country from going into a depression. And I saw in real time his agility and uh, combination of speed and wisdom that never seen in any leader. It was almost um, you know almost unimaginable how he could make all these decisions so fast. Now on the right, I would have thought that they would have thought. Well, he's not our guy, but he did a spectacular job, and he's not a socialist. He didn't, you know, nationalize the banks. He resisted a lot of the stuff that Senator Sanders wanted, and he showed a kind of circumspection and moderation that we respect at the same time that he did all this stuff, some of which we don't like. So I would have expected a very modest a heartfelt but modest pushback from the right. Trumpism, I just didn't see coming. And uh, the racism, the, the viciousness, the savagery, the uh, um, disrespect for truth, I, I just couldn't imagine that in our country. I could imagine, certainly, people thinking the Affordable Care Act is a bridge too far, or Dodd-Frank isn't so good, or the environmental stuff wasn't the right time for that. I can get all of that. I can think that some of the anti-poverty stuff the Obama administration did, people weren't thrilled about that. But the, uh, the, the viciousness and the... Um, I'm not sure how to describe it. The George Wallaceism, maybe, mm -hmm. of, yeah. uh, that emerged. I just couldn't imagine that coming into our country, and I still am flabbergasted by it. I expected, and this is really a confession of my own absence of prescience, that Trump would be a lot like Bush too, but more a show person and a cheerleader than Bush too was, and that he would be maybe a tick or two to the right on some things or tick or two to the left on some things. I, I didn't see that at all. And what's happened to the Republican Party, that, that I didn't expect. And I say that uh, even with the fact that as a one-time and now again Washington person, I have friends in Congress who are Republicans and whom I quite like and who, at least behind closed doors, are not vicious and not savage. Okay, so that I didn't expect. The left is really, really interesting, and I say I'm, I'm not sure what to think about that. I completely get the idea that right now we want more, what's the right word, uh, let's just use a bland word, progressive action than the Obama administration did. So I completely get the idea, and I'm part of the Biden administration, very honored to be that. The fact that Biden has come out of the gate with some things that Obama didn't do, I completely get the idea that Biden's doing the right thing. I kind of regret that Obama didn't do some of those things. Yeah, I, I, I want to keep, I want to hold you to that thought right there, Professor Sunstein, because I think that, because um, this is a great conversation. I think that's exactly it. I think that in 2009, especially the first 100 days, in, amidst, in the midst of that economic collapse, uh, in the midst of two raging wars, um, and with the, with the popular vote total that uh, President Obama um, received 
and about maybe 353 uh, or 365 electoral votes. He won 31 states, first Democrat to win Indiana in a two-way race since LBJ. Um, I think people wanted the New Deal, you know, and I think uh, they expected, I remember uh, my own disappointment at the inaugural address in 2009, which really contrasts with, with, with the inaugural address that, that just occurred in 2021. But I, I expected um, more. <laughs> I expected FDR. And I, I have tremendous uh, admiration for President Obama. Absolutely. But I expected more. And I think people were disappointed that there wasn't the articulation of a grander, bolder vision about American democracy, one that was rooted in uh, social justice and racial justice. We're using the term anti-racism right now, coined by uh, Angela Davis uh, many, many decades ago, but recently made more popular. Um, but I think people were disappointed about that. Um, they were disappointed economic elites weren't held accountable, um, and they were really disappointed in the president's real inability to forthrightly talk about race. And I think that that's probably the biggest irony of the Obama presidency. And certainly by 2015, 16, he did very eloquently. He talked about mass incarceration. By 2015, he, he, he had these extraordinary speeches. But I think early on, I think people, that's part of the disappointment at least. It's a completely great question. And uh, I, don't, I, know, I know there is widespread disappointment and I just don't know how to think about it. And I'm also impossibly biased because I'm such an admirer of President Obama, which is, you know, it's part, partly personal, partly gave me my job. But, <laughs> but, but to put him in the, you know, the most favorable light, um, he was dealing with what was about to be a depression. So the fact when I got to Washington in, I guess, late 2008, all the stores were closed. It looked like a different country. I mean, much worse than under COVID-19, really, where it's temporary stuff and we know we're going to get back on our feet. It looked like the country is falling apart. And the numbers that Obama, President-elect, saw it was much worse than that. It looked like the bottom was falling out. So, the, so number one thing he wanted to do was make sure the economy didn't collapse. The number two thing he wanted to do was to get the Affordable Care Act passed. And that he saw, I know, as a matter of social and racial justice, not just as a kind of technical thing about health care. So consistent with some of the things that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X uh, emphasized, the idea of getting health care and seeing that as a right is important for everyone and for people of color and people who are uh, struggling economically, disproportionately mm -hmm. people of color. That was really essential to him. And he had his eye like a laser on those two things. And then there were a couple other things, one of which was climate change, that he thought we, we kind of got to do something about this because the planet's at stake. And I think he thought maybe particularly because of uh, his skin color and the fact that um, he had taken some pretty tough blows, he, he, he was in a way he, he, to go there early maybe, I haven't talked to him about this, would have been um, a problem for the Affordable Care Act, the effort to prevent a depression, the financial reform, and um, climate change stuff. He wanted first to deal with that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
You, you know, I think that even uh, when I read his uh, memoir, which only goes up to 2011, uh, Promised Land, really extraordinary uh, book, over 700 pages. And it really gives you, I think it's the best presidential memoir, um, you know, really that I've ever read. read. Uh, and it gives you a really good idea of how he views race, American exceptionalism, all these different things. Um, do you think that President Obama and the Obama administration as somebody who was there and really throughout, you were there for uh, the beginning, but also the end in terms of uh, you were at the DOD 2016, 2017. Do you think he underestimated the Republican Party? And do you think that that underestimation um, in terms of the evolution of the Republican Party from sort of maybe the big tent Republican Party of Eisenhower, which even then was different from the historic GOP of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and anti-slavery and abolition, but certainly the big tent of the 1950s Cold War Republican Party, which had a mix of sort of um, small C conservatives, supply side economics, um, you know, Cold War, um, really Cold War liberals uh, in the context of big L liberalism, uh, sort of sort of American post-war liberalism even if they were conservative. Um, do you think he underestimated the Democratic Party and its evolution? Because certainly that party, when we think about it in 2021, is a much different party from, in certain ways, from the party of even Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. I think it's, it's fair to suggest he underestimated their intransigence and overestimated their willingness to listen to the force of the argument. Mm. And I say that recognizing there are lots of different Republicans out there. There are lots of people who listen to arguments. There are lots of people, certainly behind closed doors and sometimes in front of an audience will say, you know, this was right or this is right, even though it's not the standard Republican idea. I do think in retrospect, I'm thinking, having been there early, that on the Affordable Care Act, we really thought we could get some Republican support. Mm -hmm. And we uh, worked hard for a long time to try to get it and make accommodations. And the president wanted it to be bipartisan. And I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if they were uh, playing a game or whether they were acting sincerely, but in, in the end couldn't get there. But, but the Republican unwillingness to participate in what was originally a Republican idea, that is the Affordable Care Act grows out of Governor Romney's work in Massachusetts, that I, we didn't see that coming. And I, I certainly didn't see it myself. I've been surprised since I've been in Washington at times in the last months uh, that good people whom I know on the Republican side are are capable of things that let's just say are not good things. All right, so let's shift to the present in a way. And I wanna shift to the present by, by still talking a little bit about the past. I think one of the interesting aspects for me as somebody who lived through the Obama administration and really the election of 2008, uh, had a chance to meet Senator Obama in Boston in 2007, um, is the extraordinary inspiration that his campaign amplified in young people. Uh, there was huge increase in voter turnout. The whole notion of, of civic activism and being part of small d democracy, being proud to be an American and, and, and thinking about it very, very optimistically that we could tackle these big ideas and big challenges of racism and poverty and, and what was going on in the international arena. 
Uh, I want to fast forward to 2020. And in a lot of ways, I think one of the interesting juxtapositions of this period, uh, sort of Obama and, and Trump and Black Lives Matter 1.0 and 2.0, is that in 2020 with the pandemic uh, and the George Floyd protests, we've seen you know the largest social movement uh, in American history, 15 to 26 million Americans come out in support of Black Lives Matter, racial justice. but really connecting that to these larger issues of um, what sometimes people call intersectional justice, connecting it to the environment, connecting it to immigration, connecting it to police brutality and the maternal health outcomes of Black women and Latinx and Asian Americans, so, so many other things. What do you think about this time in terms of the state of our democracy when we think about the, the, the optimism at times coming out of these mass protests and demonstrations? But also clearly the, the the anger, and at times we saw um, violence, both from law enforcement. At times we saw violence in the streets. Most of the demonstrations were overwhelmingly peaceful, of course. But what do you think about our the state of our democracy from your vantage point? I think it's so interesting. I think you nailed it. That under uh, the campaign, let's say, of Senator Obama, there was a kind of joy on mm-hmm. the part of so many people in a sense that something's happening that is electric and yes. promising. And I was, was one of them. <laughs> you, and me, you and me both. And, and, and it seemed like it was, you know, Kennedy, the best features of Kennedy, but much better yeah. even yeah. In, in multiple ways. And that had, and I can tell you in the early days in the Obama White House, um, it seemed, you know, it, it seemed magical that Mm -hmm. lots of colors, Malcolm X said once in a speech, you probably know this, turn around, look at yourselves, you're a thousand and one different colors. That's that's what it was like in the Obama White House. And Mm -hmm. people were so uh, determined, but with a smile. And and that was unique. Uh, What we've seen recently, um, it seems from the standpoint of this observer, it, it doesn't have the kind of innocent joy. It has a, a kind of uh, determination, a sense of need, sometimes a sense of desperation. Hope is there for sure, and, and sometimes joy. But it feels a little, it has a kind of, oh, my God, in it. You know, if someone's mm-hmm. been murdered and then you're doing something about um one murder, surely, but also murders that go back, you know, uh, centuries and that are not two in the last year. You're not smiling. You might be thinking something's afoot that's going to be good and this is going to turn this around, but it it has more... um, I defer to you on this, but just as observer, it has uh, more a more a sense of uh, here we are. This is going to stop, and if people are in some sense, some deep sense together, it has exhilaration and hope in it. But it's not the it's it's more complicated. Obama was after Bush, not after Trump. It feels like this, as you say. There's a sense of everyone matters. And each one of us has to do something, because if we don't, no one will. And during the Obama time, it didn't, it didn't have that feel. 
So to the extent that there's something really large happening in our country now, and there's a good argument that it is, it's that so many people think everyone matters. I remember when uh, Biden was elected, I thought, what am I going to do? I have this good, happy academic life. Am I going to go to Washington? And I thought the first sentence I ever typed as a kid, I was probably 11, was <laughs> that was the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. It's, mm -hmm. it's sexist, but it, it, it came to my head. That was the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. I don't know where that came from. Was it the was it World War II? Or <laughs> the other was the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog, and that seemed less relevant. So they might be <laughs> But I think all of us, well, all isn't right, but a lot of people who are attuned to longstanding and current uh, horror are thinking now is the time for everyone to come to the aid of their country, whether it's by talking to someone or by uh, joining a protest or by objecting to something that maybe you've lived with for a long time. Yeah, the, the quote I'm thinking of is not only Dr. King's fierce urgency of now, which uh, then Senator Obama used on his way to the presidency in 2007-8, but also Dr. King at the March on Washington said uh, on Wednesday, August uh, 28, 1963, now is the time to make real the promise of American democracy, which is a line that always uh, stays with me. You know, I think um, uh, one, one, one aspect of the evolution of Barack Obama, and, and I don't know if you caught this too was, and I'm writing about this now, there's a striking juxtaposition between the young Senator Obama's 2004 Democratic National Convention keynote speech, which is so exhilarating, and the optimism um, that he, he really invokes in that speech, and then his 2020 virtual speech at the Democratic National Convention from Philadelphia, where he's really talking about democracy being imperiled. And, and, you know, what I think is so, I think both speeches in certain ways are beautiful, but I think what is so poignant is that for, there's 46 million black people in the United States, so many of them living disproportionately below dot, 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 in terms of whether it's the poverty line, all negative social and economic indicators overrepresented and underrepresented and all positive, right? And what's so poignant about the latter speech and not just the, we are not red states or blue state speech is that I think it actually comes much closer to the, the, not just the black experience, but the experience of being in America for people who've been on the margins, you know, where he's saying, look, we're going to have to struggle. Voter suppression is happening. There's all this anti-democracy. Our democracy is imperiled, but we have to continue to fight and believe. Um, so I, I don't know if you caught that in terms of, you know, from 2004 to 2020, just the evolution. And I think in a way, the older Obama recognized in deeper ways some of the systemic challenges that we face uh, and, and the fact that we all have to come together to speak about them and, and sort of with clarity and honesty and conviction. You know, so it wasn't just hope. He was saying, look, we're really in trouble. <laughs> Right. I think that I think you're completely right. The 2004 speech, I remember it well because he was my colleague. He was a professor and now he's going to give this speech at the Democratic National Convention. And I was so scared. I thought, you know, which of my colleagues could give a speech like that? They can teach a law school class. Could they speak in front of a large audience? And I was worried for him. And, and then when he did what he did, I saw it in real time, you know, it 
knocked me out. I was just watching it by myself. I cried, but I also felt here's this guy, a normal guy who can give a speech like that. And that was uh, more than inspiring. But as you say, it was a little bit like an effort to paint a picture in the hope that you can make it so by, by painting it. So I bet in 2004, I haven't talked to him about this, he was at least to some extent alert, I'm sure, to social division and the fact that red states and blue states really aren't the same. But if you paint a picture of a certain kind, you know, in any place, in a friendship, in a family, you can make it more like itself if you paint it. Um, but in 2020, you know, especially having seen Trumpism, which I'm confident, I haven't talked about this, but I'm confident he did not see that coming, at least not in mm -hmm. that form. Uh, you have to acknowledge uh, some things that you maybe knew, or maybe you certainly knew, but that they wouldn't be uh, front and center in your statements to the American people. And uh, the problem of uh, racism and the problem of deep division is something that President Obama, and I will always refer to him as President Obama, even if my current boss is President Biden, mm -hmm. uh, who was also president. Uh, President mm -hmm. Obama um, uh, is very keenly alert too. I, I think he saw it and felt um, informed by it in ways that have, have marked his conception of, of our country, which he loves but who's, let's say, enduring uh, somewhere between struggles and horror, that's more visible to all of us, really, than it would have been, I think, in 2009. What can people do now in terms of hopes of democratic uh, renewal? You know, small d democracy, there's so much voter suppression, um, there's so much hyper-partisanship, um, and not just at the federal level, but at the state, regional, local levels. Politics has really become completely transformed on one level. But as a historian, I can tell you it's, it's very, very similar to Reconstruction era politics. And the whole United States has become <laughs> the Reconstructed South and that battle between Reconstruction and Redemption. You know, Reconstruction meant, meant abolition democracy and Black citizenship and dignity, and redemption meant a, a resurgence of, of white supremacy in the South. Um, what can we do right now? Because these things are becoming so clear. I think the last 18 months has given the entire nation and the world its best public education on matters of race and democracy ever. You know, there's just been more people tuned in, more people both inspired, but also angry, desperate, hopeful, all of it. We've seen it all. Um, what can people do now to, you know, Lincoln talked about binding the nation's wounds. What can we do? There's a book uh, about change called Switch from about 10 years or so, 10 years or so ago, which, which has various things that all of us can do. And one of the ideas is shrink the change. So, and the basic idea is if you have a problem, let's call it racism or poverty or uh, police misconduct, let's have a light word, you can't solve any of those three. At least none of us can as individuals. But there's something maybe you can help move toward. So you can maybe in the community in which you live, do something 
It might be symbolic, but, but we live by symbols, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said. Um, you might put, you know, Black Lives Matter on your front lawn. My family did that. That's not a huge deal, but it shrinks the change. Or you might uh, participate civically in something. I mean, to see the outpouring of political activity in the presidential race that we just emerged from was almost unbelievable to see people who have basically no means doing something to make sure they vote and get other people to vote and to see people who are, you know, celebrities who basically haven't been in politics ever thinking I have a civic responsibility and I'm going to use my voice. Uh, if we shrink the change in terms of maybe a local election, getting behind somebody, if, if there's one person who's struggling in some way that might involve politics directly or indirectly, if we can help that person, if there's a local police department where there's someone who's really good, who needs an encouraging word, or maybe more than that, or someone who's not so good, who needs you know to be called out, held accountable, even if it's only through one person's voice, that shrinks the change. Uh, my wife, uh, my public official right now, likes to say you can't change the world, but you can change someone's world. And each of us today can show uh, kindness or indignation about something, and, and that can change someone's world. All right. My final question is um, about hope. We've been talking somewhat about hope, and certainly uh, President Obama famously uh, invoked hope and change on his way to the White House in 2008. Are you feeling hopeful um, about the state of American democracy right now and, and the, the country's future? I'm feeling very, very hopeful combined with trepidation. So the hopefulness comes from the outpouring of uh, positive action on the part of people from all walks of life in the last, let's say, three years. I've never seen anything like it. I guess when I was a kid in the 60s, there was something like it, but I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't looking a whole lot. I was too young for it. And it's different now. It feels more focused than at least the 60s in, in retrospect did. And well, to the extent that was focused on the Vietnam War, it was focused, but otherwise it seemed a little undifferentiated. This has uh, racial injustice. It has... Uh, poverty, it has climate change, it has environmental justice, something which unites race and economic uh, status and health and environmental quality, puts them all together. Never seen anything like that. And to see what President Biden's been able to do, I think people didn't expect it. And to get stuff done in a short time, that's extremely hopeful. And to see most Americans applauding and at worst intrigued and curious, that's a really hopeful sign. I do think that uh, our country has received a, a kind of lesson that we didn't want to receive. Uh, maybe a number of people knew it was, it was possible, but uh, uh, but many didn't. And that is to see that some of the worst stuff in our country really could seize power. And uh, I don't, don't know what to say about President Trump in, in particular. I'm not sure what animates him in particular. But Trumpism had a kind of, I think the right word is savagery, that goes back to certain um, 
uh, parts, let's say, of American culture. And uh, I, I can't um, avoid when I think of the this contemporary cloud, let's call it, uh, Thomas Jefferson saying about s- slavery, when I think that God is just, I tremble for my country. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us after the last few years, uh, we might be trembling a bit where we weren't trembling before. And uh, that's combined with the sense that uh, there, there are hopeful signs that maybe are something we've never seen before as well. All right. We'll end it on that positive note of hope. <laughs> uh, we've been talking with Cass R. Sunstein, who's the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard University, the author of numerous books, including The World According to Star Wars, which came out in 2016. He's also senior counselor in the Department of Homeland Security currently. I really enjoyed this. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure. I thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.